I should be better by now. Have you ever found yourself saying those words? I mean, I've had this cold that's lingered since before Christmas, and it feels like every morning I wake up and say to Chris, shouldn't I be better by now? But it's more than a cough, right? When I think of the years I've been a husband, a father, and I kind of just assumed more of my selfishness would have been burned away at this point. But it's there, and I think to myself, man, I should be better by now, a better father, a better husband. I look at my life as a whole. God saved me when I was a kid, um, I don't know, 25 years ago, something like that. And I, I, I thought sanctification would be quicker. I see my remaining sin, and that, that familiar refrain comes back. I should be better by now. How about you? We, we live in this world that is marked by improvement, by progress, by, by, by growth, right? We're obsessed with it. We, we would even support improvement for the sake of improvement, right? Improvement for its own sake. Nothing stays static in our world. A company's options, a product's options, even our personal options are improvement, or irrelevance. Goodness gracious, what isn't new and improved these days? We just got a box of diapers, huge on the front, new and improved. It's a diaper. You don't need to make this new and improved. Um, marketing departments know this. It's not enough that, that home improvement is a $475 billion industry, but now we shop at places that are improving home improvement. Um, I'll admit that I was absolutely shocked when I read that this cultural idea of progress, of improvement, it wasn't always a human goal. It wasn't until the 16th century that people really started talking and writing in terms of progress, in terms of improvement. Even you had uh, authors early on like Jonathan Swift mocking the idea of cultural improvement, um, Gulliver's Travels, for example. But after 500 years, it's just the water we swim in. No one even thinks to ask, is improvement a good thing? Because I think for most of us, our definition of improvement has goodness right in that definition. It, it's making things better. We just assume things should be better by now, and especially in January when we're in this new year, new you kind of mode. We're all striving to be better, um, but it's the second week of January, so probably most of us are failing to be better. That transition from Christmas feasting to New Year's fitness does not come as easy as it used to for me. And so a lot of us, we feel bad. We feel unworthy. We feel guilty about our, our, our stagnation, our lack of self-improvement. And it's significant because we assume if I'm disappointed in myself, then surely God is disappointed with me as well. We enter into this deadly game of comparison, of condemnation, which isn't at all what we're called to as Christians. I mean, Jesus never calls his people to self-improvement, broadly speaking, whatever that means. He calls us specifically to Christ-likeness. 
Not that there's anything wrong with self-improvement. There's a lot of good in self-improvement. But when we start mixing categories and defining ourselves by our progress, um, we, we get into all sorts of trouble. And so what I want to do this morning is just show you a couple of truths in the Bible and then specifically apply them to progressing as Christians and hopefully uh, encourage you and serve you as maybe you have set goals that we're working on for the new year because you wouldn't believe how often I hear people just describing a good and faithful God-glorifying life and then asking, am I doing enough? Is God disappointed in me? And I want to help us not walk in this kind of condemnation, but in the freedom and boldness and joy that the gospel brings. Uh, so to do this, we're going to be in 1 John, uh, 1 John chapter 3, if you want to turn there. And 1 John is uh, a supremely helpful, yeah, also it's a dangerous letter. Um, usually when, when people teach 1 John, it's given a title like Marks of a True Christian or Tests of Real Faith or, or something like that. Uh, for, for good reason, really. In the book, John makes these statements like, if, or he says like, we have no, we know we have come to know God if we blank. We know we have come to know him if we love the brothers, if we walk in righteousness, if we abide in him. If we walk the same way Jesus walked, if we confess Jesus as Lord. And John can make all of these bold claims about how we can know we know the Father because he, he knows this overarching truth. That is, you become like what you worship. He never explicitly states this theme in his letter, but everything kind of trickles down from it. So if we set our gaze, our affections, our hope, our worship on Jesus Christ, then we will start to transform to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And if we're not seeing that effect of us being more like Christ, we can assume that the cause isn't there. We don't actually know him. The book is super helpful in that respect. But um, while a scalpel is life-saving in the hands of a surgeon, it is deadly in the hands of a toddler. I've seen John, First John wielded with just reckless abandon, um, not maliciously, that's why I said a toddler and not a mugger or someone, um, but a book that's meant to provide comfort and assurance for God's people can actually be used to steal it from them. The, John writes with care and nuance, and we don't want to bulldoze that and make it all black and white. So maybe you noticed this when Sue read from First uh, John 1 and 2, just a few minutes ago. You heard 1 John 2, 4 say, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And given the fact that I have broken a dozen commands already this morning, just you know, trying to get to church for Pete's sake, um, it, it should shake my faith, because apparently I'm not keeping God's commands, so I guess I don't know him. But John didn't write a bunch of isolated verses. We interpret that statement in light of another statement he made uh, just a few verses earlier in 1 verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
So in 1 John especially, we have to hold two truths in tension, right? If we lie and we deny our own sinfulness, the truth is not in us. And if we don't keep God's commandments, the truth is not in us. We can lie about our obedience, and if we lie about our sin, those have to go together. John writes with texture, with care. Yes, keep Christ's commandments. If you don't, you're not a Christian. And recognize you're not going to do this perfectly. And if you don't recognize that, you're not a Christian. And so as we're striving for improvement, striving for personal growth, one of those balancing statements that John gives us helps to kind of recalibrate our minds as we think about what it means to progress as a Christian. Um, it's just two verses in chapter 3. It's uh, 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, and they read like this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So here's our simple outline from these verses. Point one, what we are. Point two, what we're not. Point three, what we do. I did not think to print out an outline like Pastor Jeff usually does, but I think we can follow that, right? Point one, what we are. And this is the, the very beginning of verse two. Look at it. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. This is what we are. We are God's children. It's not something that we wait for. It's not something we earn. It's not something we do something for. It is our present reality as Christians. We are God's children now right now, today. And if you look back just one verse, 1 John 3, 1, you see why this is the case. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason we're God's children, John says, is because the love of the Father. The love the Father has has been given to us, and that means that we're called children of God. And we're not just called it. That's what we actually are. It's the love of God that makes us God's children. There's an old story about a kid studying astronomy, and he asks his dad, what, what holds up the earth? And his dad says, well, it's resting on the back of a turtle. And the kid naturally asks, and what's holding up the turtle? And the dad, instead of going into an infinite line of questioning, simply says, it's turtles all the way down. It's a, it's a phrase that, that philosophers use to describe infinite regress. How can you get back to cause and effects to infinity? Um, it's, you know... Philosophy, astronomy, it's three-year-olds too. I mean, every three-year-old knows every answer can be met with a question of, but why? And with our adoptionist children, the, we can't go back forever. The buck stops at the love of God. Why are we his children? Because he loves us. Why? Because God loves us. That, that's the end of the road. It's, it's love all the way down. In uh, Deuteronomy 7, God actually makes this clear to his people of Israel. He says, It was not because you were more in number 
than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's not because of our greatness. It's not because of what we do. Nothing we have earns God's love or keeps us in God's love. It's just God loves us. That's the foundation of us being God's children, which means if you're not God's children, this child this morning, then the way in is through the doorway of God's love. It's not striving. It's not performance. It's not self-improvement or progress. It's through Jesus Christ, the love of God made human, who died and rose again to bring God's enemies into his family, to call his enemies children. And by trusting him, we get adopted into God's family because of God's love. And the fact that we're God's children now has everything to do with our progress. Everything I want to improve about myself has a reason, right? I want to get finances in order to buy a new car. I want to lose weight so I don't have to buy bigger pants. It's deeper than that a lot of times, isn't it? I need to be better so that I can prove to, I don't know, prove to myself, prove to others, maybe even prove to God that I'm worth it, whatever it is. I need to justify my existence. So often we want to improve so that we'll be accepted. And God, through the gospel, says, but you already are. You already are accepted. That's what Jesus Christ did. You are approved. So yes, grow, but take some of the pressure off yourself. We're not growing to be received by God. We're striving because we're already accepted by God. We're already part of his family. And because of that, that means there's actually hope and power to change. There's hope of transformation. If we ignore the truth that we're God's children now, we lose the heart of Christianity. Too often we will define ourselves as Christians based on our progress instead of based on God's love. Um, so, Maybe you've noticed this, too. Um, when, when I ask someone, how are you doing spiritually? A lot of times the answer is, well, I'm reading my Bible more. I'm struggling to pray. And it's been four days since I've sinned in my usual ways. But the gospel isn't what we're doing for God. It's what God does for us. So I'm asking, are you enjoying being God's child are you resting in him? Are you finding life in God? What's it like for you? What's your experience of being God's child now? And of course, tell me the things that you're doing isn't a bad answer. That's not the wrong answer. Um, I mean, I understand why we talk about Bible reading and prayer and fighting sin. Uh, as part of God's family, right, the, the apple, as they say, doesn't fall far from the tree. There are real noticeable changes that take place when we are God's children now. In fact, in 1 John, I just grabbed two verses to preach from. 
And they serve as a parenthetical remark in a larger section that's contrasting someone who is God's child to someone who's not God's child. Um, we see this in uh, 2.28. That's where I have a heading in the ESV. It's where it starts. We have everyone who acts righteously versus, verse 4, uh, everyone who acts sinfully. Our parenthesis is right in the middle of those. Then you have verse 6, everyone who abides versus everyone who commits sins. Verse 7 and 8, everyone who acts righteously versus everyone who acts sinfully again. And finally, verses 9 and 10, everyone born of God versus everyone who acts unrighteously. John says, I can contrast a Christian to an unbeliever because there are real, tangible, noticeable effects. There's ways to tell if someone is born of God or if they're not. Or to go back to the idea from earlier, those who worship God have become like God in real, quantifiable ways. If you're God's child, you are like him. You're like God in kind. Now, here's what I'm not saying right there. I'm not saying we're little gods. There's always, even into eternity, going to be a distinction between the creator and us, his creation. But what I am saying is, as God's child, we've been born of the Spirit. We are been, we've been born of righteousness. Our fundamental disposition is of holiness and purity, not of sin. We're fundamentally righteous, holy, pure, and that produces real effects. Hallelujah, because I want those effects in my life. And we have hope of actually getting better. But all of our experience has told us we're not there yet. That's just point two, what we're not. So look at verse two again, First um, John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and, which means we have a complementary truth, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Right? It makes sense. Like, we're God's children now, and we're not what we will be then. This is uh, John Newton's testimony. He famously said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But I'm still not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So we're like God in kind, but we're different than God in degree. Right? We're not yet glorified, not perfected. What will be has not yet appeared. And I mean, the, the, the metaphor we're using of God as father and us as children, this makes complete sense. No one's going to deny that my five-year-old and two-year-old are my children now. And also, they're not what they're going to be when they're, say, 21. They're still growing up to do. They'll grow in stature and skill and wisdom and righteousness. But just because they're not what they will be one day doesn't mean they're not my children now because they're not as tall as me or as smart as me. A child naturally grows and matures. And the same is true with God's children. We're all still growing. We're all still maturing to be like our father together. We're still running the race. No one's arrived at the finish line. In fact, the verse tells us where our finish line is. Uh, this is the end of verse 2. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know when he appears, thus Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. 
So nobody reaches perfection, like, like God in the degree of righteousness, until Jesus returns. We're waiting for that day. And it's not just a chronological delay that we wait for, like this is how long it takes God to mature us. It's a, it's a theological delay. We won't be like him until we see him as he is. You see this in the verse, right? We know that when he appears, we will be like him because, I love because it's in the Bible, because it's help you interpret exactly what you're supposed to know. We'll be like him because we shall see him as he is. So remember the big argument of 1 John, you become like what you worship. You are transformed into the thing your gaze and your affections are set upon. And so right now we see God partially. We see him mediated through the scriptures. We have this vision clouded by our own sinfulness. We don't quite understand the extent of his glory, his greatness. We see him truly, just not fully. And as a result, we're currently changed truly, just not fully. Paul says we see now in a mirror dimly, but on that day, face to face. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 12. So on the day when Christ returns, when we get a full view of Christ and his glory and his greatness, when we see who he is in, in all of its, its, its glory, we will be utterly and completely transformed. Like We will be like God in, in degree of righteousness, not just in kind, but in degree. We long to see him, and when we see him, we will be like him. Won't that be a glorious day? I mean, it's tragic what we've done to the, the return of Christ. I think we've marketed it kind of as an event to be feared rather than something to be longed for. But that's not what it is for Christians. I mean, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul says it's a day when the Lord will give the crown of righteousness to all who have loved his appearing. Jesus wants us to love the fact that he's coming back. The author of Hebrews states, Christ will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly. Now, I get it. Like, it's really easy to make the return of Christ a uh, just wait till your father gets home kind of doctrine, right? Because our remaining sinfulness is real. And when it's compared to the pure glory of Christ's righteousness, uh, it will be obvious. I'm not denying that. But John doesn't dwell on that fact he says, no, when Christ appears, we will see him for who he is. Our partial vision will give way to full vision, and our partial transformation will give way to full transformation. We'll actually be like him, no longer having sin to be ashamed of, because Jesus not only paid for our sins on the cross to forgive us, but he also frees us from our sins as we see him more and more, and we'll be transformed to be holy at his appearing. We're back in First uh, John 2, 28, just a couple of verses earlier. He says, Abide in Christ now, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. There will be shame at the second coming, but not for Christians who are abiding in Christ. No, for us, there's confidence 
and glory because at long last we're seeing the one that we love the one we worship and we'll be like him our transformation will be complete so perfection comes later real substantial transformation comes now we're god's children now but we're not yet what we will be so strive yes but with what with tempered expectations we don't need to be shocked by our slowness our limits, our incompleteness. I mean, there's a tension in this verse. You might call it the already and the not yet. If you like $5 words, you might call it inaugurated eschatology. Um, But we need to hold on to what we are and what we're not together, even with all of its tension. Since we're God's children, sin, yet sin remains, That means our desires now are always going to outpace our experience. We we desire full righteousness, freedom from the power of sin, from the presence of sin, and yet that won't be our full experience until Christ appears and we see him as as he is. Likewise, the, the call of sanctification, God says, be holy as I am holy. And so we strive to be holy as God is holy, yet we know we won't reach that goal until Christ returns. I mean, when you're raising kids, there's always benchmarks. At least there are with first kids. I'm not sure with subsequent kids. Um, Maybe they just don't pay attention to them as much. But when you take your six-month-old into the the pediatrician, they don't say, well, let's see, a full-grown adult should be able to run three miles and lift 75 pounds. I, I'm just making these numbers up. And your six-month-old is just barely rolling from back to belly and vice versa, so they are clearly not measuring up. There's a ways for them to go. No one expects babies to act like adults. Rather, we celebrate, hey, they reached this milestone. My six-month-old is rolling from back to belly. And we are excited. We're pleased at their progress. You know, we don't compare a kindergartner's reading to our own. Wow, you're reading Cat in the Hat? You should be reading Dickens. Like, what are you doing? No, we, we compare it to how they were two months ago and when they were barely able to sound out words, and now they're reading books. We celebrate progress. And I know the analogy breaks down. But I wonder if that tells us anything about how God thinks of his children, who are his children now, but not what they will be then, and how we should view ourselves. Maybe there's more of God's grace in our lives that we can celebrate than we've ever really noticed. Maybe we can celebrate that he is doing things in our lives, even though we're not there yet, and celebrate that while still longing for progress and mourning sin that's still in our lives. We need to know what we are, but also what we're not. And when we understand those two, it leads to, my third point, what we do. So look at verse 3 with me one more time. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So I guess we summarize the text so far like this. We are like God in kind, that is, we are his children. We are unlike God in degree, that is, we're not perfected yet, though it's coming. And point three, so we strive to be like God in degree of 
righteousness. We don't say, you know what? Being God's child is good enough for me. I'm just going to sit back and patiently wait. No, we, we purify ourselves now to be more and more like him now. Every kid knows this. You don't watch your hero and then sit back and relax. You know, a kid watches Steve Eiserman on TV and then goes into his driveway and plays hockey, which is how caught up on sports I am that I'm using illustrations from the 90s, right? He, he listens to Louis Armstrong and then he picks up his trumpet. He tries to get there. We don't just observe our heroes. We imitate them. So verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What do we do? You want to say purify himself. We'll get there. No. First, we hope in him. Right? Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself. Hope is essential. Hope is a path to the good life. We travel the road of hope to whatever our destination is. And here it says we hope in him. Christ is the goal. Christ is the ideal. So we travel hope to Christ. We hope in him to get him. Um, One of the better books I read last year was about how kind of Christians as a whole, ever since the, I guess, the popularization of the internet, we've been really concerned about its content. What, what's online, and, and for good reasons. We want to guard ourselves and those we love against sinful content and the associated temptation. But what we've missed is just the shape, the form of the internet itself. The transformational power, not of the content, but simply of the form of the internet. And the author argues that because of the shape, the form of the internet, that we demand shorter and shorter books that will accommodate our diminished focus and present to us more like what we read online. He says, we're becoming less tolerant of friends who voice opinions we dislike. We're so accustomed to being able to mute or delete that which discomforts us. We're becoming more and more anxious, unwilling to accept silliness, or I'm sorry, unwilling to accept stillness or silence that cuts against our daily intake of new noise. There are real offline effects that emerge from online habits. And, I mean, I'm not, the author's not trying to be Johnny Luddite and say the internet's inherently bad or sinful. Rather, here's my point, for for years, for decades now, we've put our hope of the good life in technology and in social um, media and social technology. We've hoped that that progress will bring about the good life. And as we've hoped in that, we've actually been transformed to be like the thing we've set our hope in. First, we form our idols, and then our idols form us. That's the way it always works. We become like what we worship, what we hope in. And so we can't miss this hope part of verse 3. If our hope for the good life is in Jesus Christ, then we will set our gaze on him and we will become like him. We will purify ourselves. But if our hope is elsewhere, then our transformation is either going to be non-existent or at least unnatural, you know, unnatural like swinging at a ball with our eyes off the ball. It's like trying to drive a straight line while staring at the road off to the side of you. If our hope's set on Jesus Christ, though, we'll do whatever it takes to become like him. That's what the verse is saying, right? And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
we put forth the effort to be more like him, little by little, piece by piece. We purify ourselves as he is pure. We have this, this hope-motivated, adoption-grounded striving to become like Christ in his purity. I mean, 3.5, just a couple verses later, says, You know that Christ appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So we strive to be like him with no sin in us either. And applying this purification, it's not, it's not easy and straightforward when we talk about progress. I mean, sometimes it's really obvious, you know. I sin by getting angry because all of my hope was in my expectations of what this day would look like. And when my expectations were shattered, I sinned because of it. But often it's not that easy. I mean, the number one resolution for 2024, just like every other year, is to improve fitness. Um, 48% of resolution makers want to become more fit this year. And so should you feel guilty if that's your goal of progress? And should you feel like a failure before the Lord when we're 14 days into the new year and you've been to the gym on four of them? Like, you're not making strides. You're not purifying yourself in that way. No, no, of course not. I mean, that's not what purifying means for once. Purification means getting rid of moral filth and, and so uh, getting rid of sin. And Jesus didn't die to make you fit. Being out of shape is not sinful. And I, mean, I don't even know, based on Scripture, how you would define in shape and out of shape. The, like, the Bible doesn't draw that line anywhere. It's not a category of, of the Bible. It's a medical definition. I mean, it's probably a cultural definition on what people find attractive, but we'll, we'll say it's a medical definition and give it the benefit of the doubt here. But either way, it's not a moral category. It's not a sin and righteousness purification type issue. And so the command to purify itself and the weight of success or failure with it doesn't apply to fitness. We can ease up if we feel guilty before the Lord because we're not keeping up with our goals of self-improvement. Christ doesn't call us to be in shape. Now that being said, of course, I said it's not always straightforward and easy. Very few people want to improve fitness for the sake of fitness itself. It goes deeper, doesn't it? You really, really care what you look like and what other people think about you. And so you have these sinful, vain desires. And that's something that we need to be purifying. Or on the flip side, I'm not going to take care of my body. I like gluttony and laziness. and I have no self-control. Three more sinful desires that need to be purified. But see what I did there? purification could look like either success or failure in fitness. It's not the fitness itself that matters. At the same time, right, maybe you want to be more effective in your service to the church, and so you need to overcome some physical lim limitations. That's a great reason to get in shape. Maybe you want to be a good steward of the body that God has given you. He didn't just make us spirits, but embodied spirits. So you want to be a good steward of that. Wonderful. Maybe you want to um, be able to, to serve and help your family and be with your kids. Great. Like, these are godly desires that come from a changed nature of being God's child. Or 
Again, maybe you're in a season of life where you have to sacrifice your own personal fitness for a, for a greater good of others. Maybe you're caring for old parents or young kids. And so if you're <laughs> spending too much time on fitness, there's purity that needs to happen. It, it's complicated. Do you see what I'm getting at? The, it, things aren't clean and clear in our lives. We have to do some digging into our heart motivations to, to see, hey, am I being pure here? I mean, really, it's less about doing what is pure and more about being somebody who is pure as Christ is pure. Because the same actions could come from a thousand different motivations. But if we're God's children, hoping in Christ, this is what we do. This is what we give our lives to. We purify ourselves as he is pure. I mean, I already showed my hand in the introduction of the sermon, right? I said, I think far too many Christians unnecessarily beat themselves up and think that God is disappointed in them. And we need this biblical recalibration to think about our lives. We need to bring back the nuance that John has in his letter of, yeah, you're going to sin, but don't use that as an excuse to sin. Be righteous, but don't expect to be perfectly righteous. Maturing as a Christian, sanctification, progress, whatever you want to call it, it's not a pass-fail type exam. right? There's categories, there's tensions in there. I love the way Paul says it. In, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says to that church, he says, you are walking in a way that pleases God. So increase in it. Do it more and more. There's a biblical category of you are pleasing the Lord and there's room for improvement. You are doing what's right and God is satisfied and other brothers and sisters are benefiting. So you can do more of that. They're, they're not mutually exclusive categories. And I think that as we consider then what we are, what we're not, and what we do, then we can start to have this nuance and care of thinking about our lives. And the refrain of our lives then can be rejoicing in God, the Father who loves his children, and hoping in Christ even as we think about our failings and realizing, maybe I should be better by now. And so let, let me pray to close us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give hope and give life and give encouragement through this text. There are tensions that aren't clean and clear for us. There are motivations in our own hearts that we are not always the most um, perceptive of. And yet you give us your word to help us, to, to help us to know you and how to walk in a way pleasing to you, to, to purify ourselves. So I pray that you would do that this morning, that you would save any who are not yet your children, and that you would give us a hope in Christ for transformation and give us a energy and life and vitality that it takes to purify ourselves as Christ himself is pure. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.